the album uh, is going to be called The Butterfly Effect, so you're actually the first people to, to hear that. Clang, name dropper, honestly. I, I know, right? I know, I know. I, there's a couple more names there, but I, I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> um, uh, and he stood up and we shook hands and he says, if you get that follow-up for Terry, I'll bloody thump you. <laughs> so I thought, right, that is worth a thump in anybody's money, you know. Hello and thanks for listening to episode 5 of the Vintage Rock Pod, the podcast series that features rock star interviews giving us the rock and roll stories from the 60s, 70s and 80s. I'm Paul Stevenson, thank you very much for hitting play. Now it's four weeks since the launch of episode 1 and I can tell you I've now had listeners from 20 different countries worldwide. So a big thank you to the listeners, especially in Brazil and Finland. There seems to be some sort of pockets of listeners in those countries. Uh, UK and US, as you probably expect, are number 1 and 2 of the most listened to countries. But Brazil and Finland are battling out for the third spot. So a thank you to them and a big thank you to you wherever it is you're listening from. Keep spreading the word. Now, I've got a jam-packed show for you today with some incredible guests. They just keep coming, honestly. On this episode, I speak to a wonderful man, a CBE no less, a man who's written and produced for some of the biggest acts of the 60s and 70s and has sold over half a billion copies of his songs worldwide. He's quite a character too with some brilliant stories that I know you're going to enjoy. We also got our first exclusive last week as well. I was told in an interview first all the details about a brand new album from the legendary The Jam bass player Bruce Foxton by his longtime bandmate, songwriting partner Russell Hastings. It's another great interview with some cool stories. And of course, we'll be catching up with Maudie in Los Angeles. He's got a specially curated list for us this week. So exciting stuff there. But before all that, I wanted to quickly run through some of the big rock headlines from the week in case you missed them. Starting with some record-breaking news from The Boss. Yes, Bruce Springsteen went straight in at number one on the UK album charts with his new release, Letter to You, which is fantastic enough, but in doing so, he sets an incredible new landmark. Springsteen's 12th chart-topping album now means he's the first solo artist to have a number one in five consecutive decades in the UK. It's also the fastest-selling album of 2020 so far, according to the official charts company too. See, classic rock stars rule, don't they? Also news coming out this week that there's plans in the works for next year for a star-studded birthday tribute to David Bowie, titled A Bowie Celebration Just for One Day. So far, more than 20 of Bowie's former bandmates and other musicians, such as Joe Elliott from Def Leppard and uh, Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins, they're going to be putting together a a special digital event on January the 8th. And bizarrely, and in real TV news, this would be the and finally bit on the end, the Hoff. Remember David Hasselhoff? Well, he's gone metal. Stick with me here. We know he was a big singer and star in the likes of Germany and Switzerland and that sort of stuff, but right now he's teaming up with an Austrian duo called Q-Stack to record a single, and there's a wacky music video to accompany it too, apparently. So there, some rock news to keep you up to date in case you've missed any. Right. Let's get into the episode then and kick it off with a great chat I did just a couple of days ago with the wonderful Russell Hastings. He's genuinely living his boyhood dream, growing up as a big fan of the jam, buying their music, seeing them live, that kind of thing. He has, for the last 15 years or so, been performing, writing and recording with jam bass player Bruce Foxton as part of From the Jam and Foxton and Hastings. He's also the only man to have played guitar and sang with Foxton and jam drummer Rick Buckler since the jam split up. He gave me an exclusive about the new album he's working on with Bruce and so much more so welcome to the vintage rock pod Russell Hastings good morning good afternoon good evening wherever you are around the world how are you absolutely well thank you very much for joining us it's a pleasure to have you on the show Pleasure. Good stuff. Now, you're here to talk about something quite exciting because it's very difficult times for, for musicians and things like that at the moment and concert loving fans as well. But uh, before we get to that and some exciting news, I'll just say before we get to that, we just have a little chat about, about yourself then, because as I said there in the intro, you were a huge fan of the jam, weren't you, as a, as a youngster? And uh, you've been so lucky to, to, to join from the jam yourself now. Yeah, I was. I was a big fan. I mean, I have to really think back now. It's such a long time ago because I'm 55 now, like most uh, jam fans and of that period. But uh, and me and Bruce often talk about it and laugh about it. But um, uh, yeah, I was a big fan. You know, I saw the band from around 77 right the way through to sort of 82. Uh, it was what we all did. Me and, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of other kids around the UK and around the world around that period, around the late 70s. And um it was an exciting time for music, you know, and uh, it was a little bit like football teams, really. Mm-hmm. And you followed, a, you know, you, whatever band you followed was like following a football team. So you just went along, saw them whenever they were in your town. And, uh, you know, you travelled, got on a train and went to saw them. But, you know, it was exciting times. And um, 
you know, think great memories of those times, great memories. Absolutely. So how did you go from um, being a huge fan and, and watching them live and buying the music to, to actually recording and performing with Bruce for football well, since 2007? Yeah, t- well, 2005, really, because Rick and myself had a, an acquaintance back in the early 2000s. And, um, a Rick, uh, and I said to Rick one day, how do you fancy doing something, you know, getting a band together? And he went, yeah, great. You know, I haven't played for 12 and a half years. So so we hadn't played for a long time. And um, so we went into a studio in Woking. And we worked Rick in, you know, and uh, over about nine months. And then we went out on the road with a band called The Gift, uh, which had uh, bass player Dave Moore in the band. He was a great dear friend of mine from years ago. And uh, we went out on the road. So we sort of toured that around for about 18 months. And then um, our paths crossed with Bruce, who was with the Casbar Club, who'd, um, who'd left, just was just left Stiff Little Fingers. And he'd uh, formed a band with Mark Brzezicki from Big Country, uh, Simon Townsend from Big, uh, from obviously who's now with The Who, Pete's brother. And... Um, and then we ended up being on the same bill at Guildford Uni one night. And Bruce said, why don't I jump up and play with uh, uh, Russ and, and, and Rick? So that's what he did. He jumped up and he played um, Tube Station and Spivers. And, uh, you know, and then that was it. The rest sort of history, really. It sort of took off from there. And then from that point on, you, you guys got together and, and you've been uh, not just touring, um, playing music from the jam. You actually record and, and release your own yeah. music as well, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, but Bruce and myself have released albums under their own names, under Foxton and Hastings, for the last sort of 10 years, really. So we've actually got a new album that's uh, they're going to release all the details on that. Uh, well, it's just over this period now that we're in. So, you know, through lockdown, we've been, uh, you know, it's been a mental year, hasn't it? Mm. You know, it's been a year that just people want to forget, really. So, you know, we had to put all our energies, rather than watch our energies watching into the news as to when we might be getting back on the road, which was getting knocked back further and further um you know particularly with, with the second wave now hitting us and uh, so we we allocated some studio time went to saw the record company who were right behind us and uh we had we had about three or four really good songs and then so we decided went okay well let's just put our energies into this let's knuckle down because usually winter time we're on the road and uh you know time passes really quickly when you're on the road so you know Rather than spending time sitting at home looking at the dark nights, thought let's get in the studio and record some new product and new material. So that's what we we, we started about three weeks ago, really. So we're a little bit into it. It's exciting. It's great. Um, the album uh, is going to be called The Butterfly Effect. So you're actually the first people to, to, to hear that. Um, the album's called The Butterfly Effect. The artwork is amazing for it. Um, the songs are sounding great. And... Um, you know, we've actually got a really exciting, uh, well, the producer, the Jams producers come in and uh, going to be doing some production on the album as well. A guy called Vic Coppersmith Heaven is his full entitlement. And uh, Vic <laughs> produced um, uh, Malice, uh, you know, all the all the greatest hits and he, he produced all, all the jam stuff. So he was sort of like, the, if you like, the fifth or the sixth member or what, whatever you want to call of the jam. So it's great to have him on board as well. Now, when's this coming out? Do you, have you got a date or anything like that? Uh, yeah, it's going to come out next, uh, next end of next summer, really. Uh, so, because you never really release anything after sort of the spring, because everybody's uh, in theory away on holiday, whether that or not will happen. But you, <laughs> you know, you release stuff around uh, uh, the spring or the autumn time. So that's uh, the record company have said let's let's release in September. So plenty of time to get get the album finished. Um, which we're really looking forward to. It's been a great thing because we've got um, Mark Brzezicki's working on it with, on drums again with us a, a bit. Uh, and Mike, mm. uh, Mike Randon, our drummer, is on sticks as well. So the mixture between the two of them. Uh, there are a few guests coming on the album as well, which is great. Um, yeah, got some good stuff that I can't talk about at the moment, which will sort of unfold. But just an exciting time for us, really, because it's been five years since we've released, I think five years since we released um, Smash the Clock, which was successful for us and proud of that album. But So you've always got to keep moving forward with product. And uh, we use the word product, really. It's just sort of a bit of a bit of a, an industry word that, mm. but, you know, new albums, whatever you want to call them. And, um, you know, because it's great for us. It's great for our brains to, to engage in that stuff. And, the reason we've called it the butterfly effect, people say, you know, why is that? It's because of the influences over the years of many people. And I was, I guess, massively influenced by uh, George Harrison and people like that, really. And when Mark Brzezicki told me that he played with George Harrison, I was like completely uh, 
besotted by you know mark tell me more tell me more and i, I actually my, my past just missed each other with george because i was hanging out of uh, a studio years ago called fisher lane farm studios which he was a big friend of a guy called mike rutherford from genesis and mm-hmm. um and and he used to to there was a great story where another friend of mine was down there he had to meet george and george didn't live that far away he lived up in um, like the henley way and george came down for the day got out of his car, out of his yellow Porsche. And uh, as he got out, he just leant down into the flower beds and started picking all the heads off the flowers. And because uh, that's what he was, you know, he said, look, I don't know what he said. I don't know why Mike wants me here. He says, you know, I'm a gardener these days. That's what I do. <laughs> I love that. And how humble is that? You know, George Harrison saying, I'm a gardener. Why does somebody want him to play on the album? And he was just deadheading all the plants along the verge of the, outside the studio. You know, I love all things like that, you know, little stories. It's phenomenal, isn't it? And just talking about stories as well, obviously big fan of the jam. I mean, Paul Weller has um, helped out, hasn't he, on previous albums that you and Bruce have done, hasn't he? Yeah, we've recorded most, the last few albums at Paul's studio. And the reason we're not recording there this time is because Paul's in there himself um, doing what we're doing and that's uh, keeping busy, really. So, But yeah, Paul's been great over the time, over the periods of time that we've had in the studio there and he's played piano on a, uh, he played a piano. He, he's played on about six or seven tracks, um, whether he played harmonica or whether he played flute or piano or a bit of guitar. Um, so he's been, you know, he's been very, you know, open-armed. It's been lovely to see, it was lovely when we first went there to see Bruce and Paul, you know, been so uh, close together again which was great and um you know much to the annoyance of the lo- of, of the press i think you know the press always love to stir stuff up yeah and and it just isn't like that you know it's uh, uh, from what i saw you know and i was with paul quite a period of time and uh, both paul and bruce you know there's a lot of love there from past and there always would be you know because of what went on uh, and uh, they've all grown up and uh, you know, that everybody's just got on with life and uh, it's just nice to see, really. It's nice to see people putting uh, stuff behind them. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. But looking ahead then, you, you've actually come to talk to me about um, a special up-close and acoustic mini tour that you, you, you're yeah. putting together, aren't you? Tell us a bit yeah, more about that. Yeah, we, we are. We actually, uh, we were doing some more dates, but those ones are in uh, tier three or four now, so they're not <laughs> happening. They were Newcastle, uh, Newcastle, Manchester's, those sort of areas, you know. So we start actually in Henley, uh, which are, they're all sold out, Henley, on the 29th, 30th and the 1st. Then we move down into, uh, I think we go to South End, which again, most of those are sold out. But the London, I think we do London, uh, Boysters um, in Canary Wharf, which is on the, uh, I think it's the 15th, 16th and 17th of December. And then we come to Brighton, uh, 17th and 8th, uh, 18th and 19th. I think they're the correct dates. Um, just because we really wanted to do it's just so unusual for us not to be on the road at this time of year so we said look let's let's get something together so they, they come up with these like socially distanced very safe uh, venues to play and what i think the boisterous one in london i think that's how you pronounce it is uh jules holland jules owns those those chains so there's quite a few things that are happening there very good. So um, when you say um, that the social distancing they brought in, what, what, what are we expecting? Because we've seen many things, people in kind of little crates pocketed away, or we've seen people in bubbles and flaming lips and stuff like that. From what I can gather, they're on tables of no more than six and they, they book them in like big table blocks, tables that are, uh, you know, and there's a good two metre distance between those. Um, you know, it's all so weird, you know. I've seen some photographs of uh, those festivals that you're talking about in cages and pens and whatever, you know. And I think... If I'm honest, you know, it's really a, it's about getting people out there working again and getting the crews working, getting yeah, the lighting techs, the bands, you know, the producers, the tour managers. You know, the, the industry itself is just so on its ass at the moment. And uh, I phoned up our dear guitar tech, uh, John, and spoke to John a little while ago. And John's been with us for quite a few years now and uh, said, are you managing OK? And he said, well, you know, it's a little trying to keep the wall from the doors all the time, you know, um, People are struggling and our industry hasn't been, you know, much to the uh, uh, surprise to a lot of people, you know, where the government are saying that they're helping out. Well, they haven't done anything for us at the moment, personally. And uh, so we've been surviving um, of, uh, you know, of what we might have might have hid under the pillow. <laughs> you know, and, and I just think our industry is such a, you know, uh, it's such a love in the arts itself. It's mm-hmm. just been such a great industry for... For many reasons, you know, not just financial, but for people to, um, 
you know, for their mental state of mind and uh, for people to be creative. And uh, where would we be without the Beatles? Where would we be, you know, without Bill Haley? Where would we be with all that, without the kinks? Where would we be without, you know, the, the, the orchestras and things like that? Where would we be? It would be a real sad world. I, I don't know. I, I wish I had a magic wand to, to wave it away and make it all better again, you know. So say all of us. Thank you very much and good luck with the tour and everybody if you're in the Brighton and London area get yourselves down there it'd be great to see some live music and especially to hear some fantastic tales as well from from back in the day. Lovely thanks very much for your time cheers. With the new lockdown rules and things in place, it would be worth just keeping an eye on social media feeds of From The Jam just to keep up to date with the tour. But exciting news about the new album and at least something for us all to look forward to. Now, before we hear the fantastic interview with Mitch Murray, the songwriter and producer whose songs have shifted half a billion copies worldwide and he talks about the Beatles and, and so many other huge bands, let's go stateside and catch up with our good friend Maudie who's got something special for us this week. Hey, Paul, everything's good. It's sunny Los Angeles, cooling down, but we're doing all right. It's sunnier than the highlands of Scotland, put it that way, chucking it down here. Always is. <laughs> sure it is. <laughs> you got a nice little pub there, huh? Absolutely. I'm in my, uh, what, what did I call it? A vintage rock pot, pod, pub shed studio. There you go. That's wow. it. Lovely. What a tongue twister. <laughs> it's a mouthful indeed. Uh, speaking <laughs> of sun, you've got a bit of a sunny, sunshine list for us, haven't you? I do, I do. I actually have a Ranker exclusive that, um, I mean, we wrote a, sit down with vicky peterson from the bangles and you got to meet her i yes i was lucky enough to um go actually see mike love play with his version of the beach boys uh and we met backstage and she's just as lovely as you'd think she is and and she was just kind enough to make this list for us so clang name dropper Honestly, I, I know. Right. I know. I know. I, there's a couple more names there, but I, I couldn't even tell you. Um, <laughs> Go on then. So what's this list that she's done for you? We got her to tell us for her, the top 10 bands that define the California sound, which uh. is very important for rock and roll. Obviously, um, it just makes me think about the rivalry between the Beach Boys and um the Beatles, I was like, you know, they, they kind of traded off albums, mm-hmm. but you don't really know that unless you look into it. Um, but let's look into the top 10 um, yeah. artists that made the California sound, according to Vicky Peterson of the Bengals. We're just going to give you the top four uh, okay. or, or just just to break it down for you. But there's so much good stuff here. So let's see. At number four, we have The Doors, obviously. Jim Morrison and his, his amazing backing band, uh, who honestly wrote most of the most amazing music that they could have written obviously a staple in the whiskey uh here it's a legendary venue um that you can still go to today it's, well not today because of quarantine but you know <laughs> any other time <laughs> you can go you can go stand outside if you like have a have a smoke where where jim morrison did well, that's, that's cool um, enough for me <laughs> definitely uh <laughs> but so that's definitely i agree with her it's just a staple sound of the 60s and into you know the 70s i think when when uh jim morrison unfortunately passed away and they tried to keep the band going for a little bit but didn't work out um but let's move to number three uh which i think is also a huge huge california band there is no way that you can ever uh, not think of California listening to this band, but it's the Mamas and the Papas. Oh, California uh, dreaming, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. You, I mean, <laughs> you turn that on, you can. You're suddenly in California for the day, uh, or for for those whatever four or five minutes that the song goes on for. It's beautiful. Um, obviously, a lot of controversy there. We have a bunch of lists about these uh, uh, this beautiful group of people who, um, you know, live the rock star life to the mm, fullest. Honestly, absolutely. Um, and then we can move on to number two, which is also a, a major, major group um, who they speak for themselves, the birds. Yes, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, star-studded lineup, um, can't get the, the sound of that 12-string Rickenbacker guitar out of my head. Just definitely every time I listen, takes me back to, you know, 1960s California, which shaped everything that we listen to today. Um, and uh, they were also just, you know, biggest rock stars ever. Um, and then actually I was going to go with number one, but I'm going to, I'm going to withhold that because, uh, no, <laughs> yeah, How I have to, I, I can't just give it to you. I can't just <laughs> give it to you, but I will give you what I think should be the number one All right, because okay. 
I having you know worked on this rock and roll and, and page and, and been a fan. Um, the more I've learned about the Eagles, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> which I think should be number one, is uh, they're just so California in every single way. They went out to the desert and like did psychedelics and learned their name there. You know, came up with their name there. They came back. They did just a bunch of uh, everything about them is California to me. So I feel like. They should be the number one, but they're actually number six for Ricky Six Patterson. for Hotel California. Can you believe it? Number six. Not even top three. It's incredible. I I would put them number one, as I said. It's it's just California to all the way, you know? Absolutely. So if we all want to find out what is number one, what's the best way to do this then, Maudie? Best way to do that is to go to the History of Rock Facebook page and find the article or message me, and I'll I'll get back to you quickly with the link. Or you could just go to Ranker and look up this list and you'll find number one there. Um, can you guess who number one is, Paul? Oh, am I allowed to? Or oh, I'm going to spoil it if I guess. Uh, we'll just leave it for them to we'll guess. We'll leave huh? it for them to guess, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Maudie. You've been excellent as always. We'll catch you again in the next episode. It's a pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me. A great list for you to check out. Vicky Peterson, the Bangles League guitarist, choosing her top ten California bands. And that's what's the subject of my top five this week, the Bangles. Now, if you're now thinking I've gone mad, then hey, they were much more than just Eternal Flame or Walk Like an Egyptian. And let's not forget Manic Monday was written for them by Prince, no less. So don't be fooled by their silky voices. I mean, these girls could rock. They played all their own instruments. They all sang lead vocals. Their harmonies were delicious, very 60s sounding. And it was their mutual love of the Beatles that brought Debbie and Vicky, who are sisters, together with Susanna Hoffs in the first place. So my list is this week's top five rockier songs from the Bangles. At number five is a song taken from their eponymous first EP from 1982 before they went big. The songs can now be found on their 2014 compilation Ladies and Gentlemen, The Bangles. This is a great live song and they still play it. At number five is Want You. At four is their first single release from their debut album All Over the Place from 1984. It's very indie jangle sound with a driving drum beat. At four is Hero Takes a Fall. Third up is actually one of their newer songs taken from when they reformed in the early 2000s. This one is from the album Doll Revolution and has a real full sound to it. At number three is Tear Off Your Own Head. My number two comes from the last album they made before splitting in the late 80s. In fact, it was the last single they released during this period too. Lead vocals from drummer Debbie Peterson on this one and features a driving drum beat from her too. At number two, it is Be With You. And at number one is actually a cover version, but one they've absolutely made their own. Originally from Simon and Garfunkel, the girls took the track and turned it to ten. It's not found on any of their albums, as it was released as a single from the movie Less Than Zero. The best rocking song from the Bangles, according to the Vintage Rock Pod, is Hazy Shade of Winter. Now, of course, they're no Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath, but as I said, they can certainly rock out. Let's hear your thoughts on that top five. As always, drop me a message on Facebook or, or social media. Search for Vintage Rock Pod and let me know what you think of that selection. Right, now it's time for my interview with the character that is Mitch Murray. He's got some great stories, let me tell you. Now, my guest today is a man who's written and produced five UK number one singles and three US number ones, but that doesn't do it justice. He's won Ivan Novello Awards. He's been awarded a CBE for services to music and seen records that he's written or produced to go on to sell more than half a billion copies worldwide. Incredible. Welcome to the Vintage Rock Pod songwriting royalty, Mitch Murray. Hello, Paul. Hello, Mitch. Thank you very much for coming on and joining us today. How are you? Oh, very well, thank you. So far, yeah. Good, good. Good All start right. to the day. That's the main thing. Now, we'll, we'll start the interview probably where most people do, to be honest with you, but it's a, it's a fascinating story. Um, you wrote what was supposed to be the Beatles' first single, an unknown band at this point. It was the first thing they went into Abbey Road Studios to record. But when you heard their version of How Do You Do It, you didn't like it, did you? You refused to let it be released. Now, tell us the story behind that. Yes. Well, funnily enough, I didn't know this at the time, but they were refusing me at the same time I was refusing them. Um, uh, but the result was damn good for all of us. Uh, I, I think, I mean, when I heard, uh, first of all, I, I hadn't s- signed a publishing contract for this song. And uh, once, if you do, if you do that, you don't actually have the control. The publisher has that control. 
And so I knew that, and uh, and I just I felt it in my water that there was this was a hit. It was the end of my first year of of professional songwriting, and uh, and I thought this is my best chance, and I'm not going to blow it. And uh, so that's what happened. So with that in mind, um, they had to talk me into letting them try it out in the studio. Think of it, the, talking me into letting the Beatles record a mono song. But of course, it wasn't like that in those days. Beatles were our known group. Mm -hmm. I thought, what kind of a name is that? You know, all sorts of stuff that, that really look uh, in history sort of paints a different picture over the years, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I didn't want them, uh, I didn't want an unknown to do it. I, I really felt the song was a, a hit and I wanted a big artist. And in those days, big artists, you're talking about Adam Faith, Cliff Richard, you know, some of those, even Herman's Hermits, that, mm -hmm. you know, they're the ones that I really fancied for it. And actually, I don't even know if Herman's Hermits were on the scene yet by that time. Anyway, they said, look, we'll try it in the studio. And if you don't like it, you know, there's not much we can do about it. I heard it the day after they recorded it. And I also heard the B-side and I thought, well, this is out of the question. It's terrible. They deliberately tried to downplay it and, and not give it their best in order for Love Me Do. What's it called? Love Me Do. Mercy. <laughs> um, for that to be the A-side. And although I thought Love Me Do was pretty catchy, but mine was catchier. And uh, so I was not happy. Anyway, look, I said, no, I can't let that happen. At the same time, the Beatles, uh, who had heard, you know, uh, didn't want the song anyway. And um, and George Martin had given them the same deal, really. If you don't like it, we won't put it out. And, uh, and they said, we don't like it. <laughs> now, um, Brian Epstein loved it. George Martin loved it. As a song, I mean, not necessarily <laughs> particularly that, that version. So, um, and Brian said that, uh, he said, look, he said, I've also got the second biggest artists in Liverpool. Uh, that's Jerry Mars and Jerry and the Pacemakers. Would you let them try it? And I said, yes, all right. But the same, yes, he said the same, the same deal. Anyway, when I heard that, I thought, oh yeah, where do I sign? That was a fantastic record he made. He had a terrific presence, uh, almost like an American presence where you really hear the the, the 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 voice right up but you also hear the background everything's clear and the drums and the and the piano and all of that and I thought this is perfect this is just what I wanted even though he's unknown he'll he'll have a hit with us and he did number one meanwhile uh love me do came out I probably got to number what, 15 11 I've no idea <laughs> not the sort of figures I like to deal with so <laughs> terrible. Anyway, um, but it worked out really well for all of us because the Beatles, Love Me Do, went into the charts. I got the first number one, the first Liverpool number one, which is how do you do it? Had number one before the Beatles, and um, and I also got the follow up, and I started my career through that. The Beatles got Love Me Do, and I, I think they did quite well after that. And uh, George Martin was happy because he got two big hits out of it. He got Love Me Do and How Do You Do It. And um, then 30 years later, the Beatles version that they had done that day came out on Anthology One. Money! I was going to say, yeah, did, did you know about that in advance? Did you know that was going to happen? Uh, there was always talk about it. And I thought that would be great because it's extra money. You know, the stuff, the song had earned its money as a as a hit with Jerry and the Pacemakers and, and various cover versions around the world. And that was a big, and by that time, the Beatles were selling albums and records. You know, if it would have come out with the Beatles, it would have been all right, but it wouldn't have proved anything and I wouldn't have got any others. So I wouldn't have had Jerry's follow-up and I wouldn't have had Freddie and the Dreamers. You know, all of these things wouldn't have wouldn't have happened. So that was the beginning of it. And I'm sure I talked too long about it. No, no, not at all. This is what we like to hear on the Vintage Rock Pod. Stories from the day, that's what we love. Um, you, you talked about Jerry's follow-up then. You obviously wrote his second number one as well. I like it. Yes, I did. And that went to number one too. And, uh, but before, I didn't even know I was competing with John Lennon at the time for that <laughs> single. I just assumed, you know, I've just got number one. Of course they want my next song. <laughs> Arrogance. Lovely. So, um, 
uh, and, but I walked into Dick James' office one day and Paul was in the other room with, uh, with Dick and with Brian Epstein. And they said, just wait in Dick's office and he'll be back in a second. So I walked into Dick's office and Lennon is sitting there. And we'd all met each other a few times by mm. then. And he said, uh, uh, and he stood up and we shook hands and he says, if you get that follow-up for Jerry, I'll bloody thump you. <laughs> so I thought, right. Well, that is worth a thump in anybody's money, you know. Absolutely. So we had a good laugh about that. And I think he was, I think he was kidding, but I'm not sure because he thumped people quite a bit. <laughs> anyway, turned out that he'd written a song called uh, Hello, Little Girl. Um, and Hello, Little Girl didn't make it. Mine did. Hello. Uh, so I, I started off my career by beating the Beatles and John Lennon particularly, and uh, <laughs> how do you do? Um, his his song, uh, Hello Little Girl, went to the foremost. And I, again, it was one of those like number 14, 18, I've no idea. I was dealing in number ones at the time. You know, that, <laughs> that was the thing. <laughs> so, so Mitch Murray to the Beatles nil at this point. That's going well, isn't it? Yeah, but it didn't last. <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't last. You did all right, let's be honest. Uh, let's go back to the very beginning then. I mean, how did you get into songwriting? Were you a musician yourself? Did it run in the family? What, what was the deal behind Never, that then? No, no, no to all of that. Um, I just felt, I, I fancied the idea of the the lifestyle. You know, I started writing songs because I bought a ukulele. I saw a movie and in that movie, there was this guy on a, on a canoe on a moonlit night with a, a beautiful girl playing serenade to her. And I thought, That's, I'd love to do that. So I, I bought a guitar and I couldn't manage it at all. It's got loads of strings. And I only had five fingers on the hand. I've no idea how anybody does it, you know. So I took it back and changed it for a ukulele where four strings and I got five fingers. And I started messing about with that. And I bought lots of sheet music. Um, sheet music doesn't really exist these days, I don't think. But in those days, it did, because music originally made money only through the sale of sheet music. And um, so the sheet music in those days, the 30, this is looking back on the 30s and 40s, which are the songs I was mm -hmm. loving at the time. They all had little uh, things where you put your fingers on the on the frets of the uh, of the ukulele. And uh, so that's how I taught myself to play a few chords. Nothing. I was never a musician. I was just played enough to accompany myself and pull the birds, you know, so I can get one of them onto a canoe. <laughs> and it did work. It did work for a bit. <laughs> so uh, I started looking through these bits of sheet music and playing the ones I knew. And one day I came across a song called Again, which I didn't know. And I played the chords and I sang the words that were printed down. And I thought, that's pretty, you know, and I didn't realise that I was making it up. I just I was just playing chords and singing my what I thought must be the tune. And uh, then when I found out that it was nothing like that, I thought that was easy. I, was, I think I wrote a song then. And that was how I started writing a song by mistake, chasing women. And I'm um, uh, still doing the same thing. <laughs> it's a story as old as time isn't it doing something to chase women um yeah, yeah. so well, how did it feel then obviously you, you you got into the songwriting business i mean when you first heard a song that you'd wrote and, and composed whatever actually recorded well, how did that feel the first time you heard something like that well it, it it felt pretty good but the best time of course was when i was on my way i lived in london at the time and i was on my way by tube into Tottenham court road from golders green where i was living and I heard a fellow whistling my song, How Do You Do It? Yeah. First time. Just another passenger. And that was the biggest thrill you could imagine. Uh, and obviously, since then, lots of things have happened like that. You, you go all, all around the world and you can hear people. You know that as a, as a songwriter where you've had a lot of success, mm -hmm. you can go to practically any country in the world and you can whistle a few lines from your song and they know what you're talking about and they'll sing it with you. And it's, you've got a fantastic connection to anybody in the world who's ever listened to music. So it's, it's quite a privileged position. Really nice. You never get used to that. It's always lovely. 
Good stuff. Well, from there, your hits kind of continue to flow after you, you work with Jerry and the Pacemakers and you worked for the likes of uh, Freddie and the Dreamers, um, Dave Clark 5-2 and things like that. But then you, you ventured into the world of books, didn't you? And you, you wrote your first book, which was um, How to Write a Hit Song by Mitch Murray. Now, this inspired what yes. became a very, very famous rock star himself, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yes. Um, Gordon Sumner mm-hmm. was at school at the time. He was about, I don't know, 12, I think. And it sort of got him interested in the music, in, in writing songs. He became Sting later on and came up to me at a, an award show, introduced himself as if he needed to, and uh, said, I, I read your book when I was a kid. And it really got me interested in that. And so we, you know, it's, it was a lovely thing to have. And then much later, I wrote a book, uh, my sixth book, I think it was, uh, Mitch Murray's um, uh, Mitch Murray's handbook. Um, hang on, I'm gonna, I'll just look at it on the on the shelf. <laughs> handbook for the terrified. <laughs> this is writing too many books, wasn't it? Handbook for the terrified speaker, volume and a volume. And uh, Sting actually wrote the uh, the front the, the foreword for me in that. So we, we came full circle. It was really nice. Oh, fantastic. And <laughs> <laughs> um, now just touching on your, 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 the first book, though, I mean, how to write a hit song. Did you have a kind of process that you followed? Did you have some sort of style that you always did? Or did each song come to you in a different way? Well, I was asked to write it by the publisher who, you know, who said I'll publish it because, I, you know, I was a bit of a name at the time, mm-hmm. and which happens, you know, every now and then in waves, you know, <laughs> you get two or three hits at the same time, suddenly you're all big news again. Anyway, so um, the publisher said, don't know. I said, well, I, I, I don't know. I just write them. Uh, and he said, well, he said, we'll, we'll have it ghostwritten for you, but write what you can and we'll get some idea of what you're going to do, you see. So I did and I started analysing what I'd been doing and thinking about, yes, and then, of course, you have to make sure you're doing this. Well, I actually wrote the book that way, but real full of little little jokes and things, where which would be between me and the publisher and all of this stuff. And, um, and I even did a thing like, uh, oh, when you finished your song, go through it with a fine-tooth comb. You can get your Mitch Murray fine-tooth comb <laughs> by sending seven and sixpence to little gags, you know. And he didn't ghost it. He just put the whole thing out screwed by a publisher who would have thought anyway so it went out just like that with all these gags almost embarrassing but it it did it was good fun and historically now it doesn't mean a can of beans does it (laughs) there we are Um, and incidentally we got about a hundred orders for the fine tooth comb as well (laughs) there was no such thing but he really did and he the publisher was dining out on that one for many years <laughs> see nowadays you'd have everything money every little bit of appliance and extras you could have to sell just on the back of things like that um just obviously yeah. touching in and out of, of your career because you've had so many things go on just want to talk about your your teaming up with pete calendar you guys worked as a team for yeah. such a long time didn't you now how did you two first join forces how did it come together well peter was working as a publisher um for one of the uh, big companies and uh, he was also a very good lyricist. And he was writing, uh, in those days, we were getting a lot of songs from Italy and from France. And, and they needed British lyrics and, and an English local record. And so Peter was one of the guys writing the English versions of these various songs. That was his background. And he was doing well, but he wasn't earning enough money because the, uh, the division of royalties very much in the favour of the original writers, of course, as it should be. And so he wanted to start a write, write with me because I was, I was a hot writer at the time. And I wasn't particularly interested in that, except uh, shortly after that, I started to find myself in a, in a very dry period of no ideas. And you think to yourself, uh-uh. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, well, this guy wants to write. I think I'll write with him. So I did. Absolutely. You worked with some incredible artists during that time. When you look at the names I've got in front of me here, Manfred Mann, Cliff Richard, The Tremolos, uh, Paper Lace. And another one collaboration that lasted a while and gained significant success was with uh, Tony Christie. You helped him have his first hit singles, didn't you? And there's an interesting twist because I heard you once say that 
the songs that he had success with were songs that Tom Jones or his team had, had turned down originally. Well, yeah, the style was turned down. Very, uh, I didn't, I didn't just unload all the stuff we couldn't get with mm-hmm. Tom. <laughs> on, on, you know, but there were a couple that we had written for Tom. I think one was uh, Las Vegas, and Tom Jones, um, Tom Jones' manager was uh, uh, Gordon Mills, who never who turned everything down that we ever offered him, and he wasn't being horrible. He just didn't see it. You know, he was. He was a good guy, and um, but we couldn't get arrested with Tom Jones. And then Tony Christie came along. We it was a, another big voice, and um, and we st- we started saying, you know, what are we going to write for him? And we started writing that sort of song for him. So he got all, he got the benefit of what Tom didn't get. But Tom Jones was didn't need our help. He was doing very well anyway. There were some great writers going, you know, working for him. So that's how uh, that's how the Tony Christie story began and continued. And then one day again, we didn't have anything good enough for him as a single. And you've got to keep your artists alive, mm-hmm. not just alive, but having hits. We weren't short-sighted enough to record something just because we, you know, we rewrote it. We wanted something to keep him in the charts, number one, preferably. And we found this song by Neil Sedaka, and uh, it was um, Amarillo. Is this the way to Amarillo? Yeah. That's so one. we recorded that. It was a, it was not all that big at the time, uh, but it kept him going. It was in the charts, but it didn't didn't make it. And it was only when Peter Kay revived it several years later. I don't remember how many years, thirty years later or something. Yeah. It went to number one best. Best-selling um, record that year. Absolutely. And how did you feel at that time? Because obviously it was a comic relief thing. And as you said, Peter Kay, I think it was 2005, I think it was around that time. How did you feel yes. when it all come back and go massive? Very pleased. But of course, it was a charity record by then. So the money was not the same. In fact, it didn't really happen. <laughs> <laughs> and then talking of the money and the earnings, one of your bigger earning tracks um, kind of came out of the blue for you, slightly, didn't it, over in Italy? Tell us about that one. Oh, yes. No, 1965, uh, at the end of a writing session. Uh, and what you do when you're writing together, you know, you're sitting there and you're drinking. In those days, you're smoking and, you know, you just you finish the song and then at the end of that you're all written off written out and you sit and you start making gags and jokes and you know having chocolate and all the all the stuff that you know you you can now relax and and enjoy and um came up with uh, i came up with this idea for a, a stupid song which would sound what i would wanted to do was to do a nice song and let everybody think it was going to carry on as a very pretty little nothing song and suddenly destroy it. There used to be a guy in America called um, Jerry Colonna, who was a trombone player. You're talking about vintage. He was a a trombone player, and he also had a crazy moustache, and he had eyes that, you know, blue eyes, one blew that way, one blew that way, and he was really funny. And his speciality was taking really beautiful songs and ruining them in a big way. So he would do, like, a song called Ebb Tide, and he'll go, and he was crazy, and it was really funny. So I did this ballad, which, uh, she walked like a dream from another world, all nice. And everybody's thinking, yeah, very pretty, but, you know, who cares? And then down came, and that was a, a, a bit of a hit over here. Went to Italy, and the group E Giganti, uh, recorded it, but they recorded it as a straight song, as a, a lovely love song to this to to a girl, and it was just they they just used my madness and they made it into a straight song, and it was number two in the charts over there and sold three hundred and forty thousand, I think it was enormous, and uh, some years later I um, uh, I've suddenly found found more money come from Italy. More money than in, you know, in, so, in some cases, more money than the Americans were bringing in. And um, and I had to find out what it was. And it was a, a lady called Mina, who was a very big star in Italy, like, an, uh, like a Madonna or an Adele, you know, in Italy. Mm-hmm. 
And um, and she recorded this as a track on an album and it caught on in a very big way. And suddenly I found everybody's recording the song, not just Mina. And there was all this stuff coming in from it. And today, if you look on YouTube, you'll find up to 40 different versions of it. And it's become one of my biggest earners, even though nobody would know about it. <laughs> just funny from that ridiculous noise. There we go. That's that's the business. It's crazy. It's crazy and it's magic and everything. Yes, yes. Uh, thank goodness indeed. Now, you've been honoured in many ways. We've, we've spoken about the CBE and awards and accolades, but the latest is, is very cool too. Um, you've been put on a set of stamps by the Isle of Man post yes. office. Mitch Murray's top 10. How, how did that even start? How did that all come about? Like see them. I've got some of them here. Absolutely. Go for it. There's 10 stamps altogether. Um, and... Um, and it's quite an honour. That is quite, mm. you know, nobody gets that. That's Unless you're the Queen, yeah. <laughs> well, the Queen has to approve them all. Oh. And, uh, um, you know, I've got crazy things going on there. And she's obviously pretty cool. <laughs> um, um, but at one point, you couldn't be on a stamp. You couldn't have your photograph. I mean, I've got about, my photograph is on about, you know, six of these or seven. And uh, you couldn't be on a stamp. It was only the Queen was allowed to, unless you were dead. And I wasn't prepared to go to that extent to get on a stamp. But I didn't have to because they liberalised it fairly soon before this came out. So uh, I was on it. I know the Bee Gees in the Isle of Man because they were brought up, they were born on the Isle of Man and brought up here. And the Bee Gees um, couldn't have their photographs on the stamps at all. They had to... They had, they had a real, you know, uh, it was about the year 2000. It wasn't all that long ago. And um, they had to console themselves. The Manx Post Office had to uh, put down the, um, the places where they were born. And this is the street where they lived and things like that. They couldn't have their face, faces on it. But in those days, the Queens didn't, didn't want any competition, you know. Well, she didn't get any with me, that's for sure. So there we are. <laughs> so talk us through the, the, the stamps then. Was it was it your selection of the 10 or was it a bit of a collaboration between you? I and had a fantastic amount of, yeah, uh, they gave me so much freedom um, to get involved. They, they encouraged it. And the designs were marvellous. I think, the, you know, mm -hmm. these the designs of these stamps are superb. A lady called Emma Cook, who uh, is a designer here and works alongside the uh, Manx Post Office for things like stamps. Just wonderful. And I, my problem was they're only small, it's a little stamp, and you're meant to do the, the story of your career in 10 stamps. And you've got to get information across and they're very small. So what I decided, um, and they agreed that it was a good idea, is we go back to sheet music. We talked about sheet music earlier on. Uh, and I thought, well, there's sheet music of all of these songs, all the hits, and we should use those because the sheet music has got it. Sheet music has got its colour. It's got photograph of the artist, the title of the song, even the writer's credits and the price at the time, two and sixpence, whatever it was. Uh, so it's a great way to tell the story. Plus, I came up with an idea right at the beginning to, uh, be, uh, we were talking about it and, and what they wanted to do with the stamps. And they told me that they'd some years earlier had had um, wild birds of the Isle of Man on the stamps. And they had a sound of a bird call embedded on a stamp by QR code. And I thought, never mind about bird calls. This is a great idea. I could do music. I could make, write a piece of music, which would be, it'll be the first time in the world a piece of music has had its first uh, bit of life on a stamp. That's how we proceeded. I wrote a thing called Man in Suite, which was uh, symphonic to begin with. Then it went into a little vocal describing the fairy bridge on the Isle of Man. And my daughters, who are both West End stars, and were therefore, for me, they were quite cheap to hire. <laughs> so it starts off symphonically, goes into pop, and then a bit of fantasy, and it ends with comedy. And uh, the only way you can hear it is by zapping a stamp. And you can hear the whole thing that way, and it's the only way to get it at the moment. 
the Isle of Man post office has, has got it for the foreseeable future anyway. Fantastic so, stuff. So if we want to get a hold of a copy of these, how do we do it? What's the best way to do it? Yeah, best way is to uh, put into Google uh, Isle of Man post office um, and uh, you'll go to their website and it's all over the website. It'll give you details and there are various packages. You can buy first day covers, you can buy stamps alone, you can buy uh, the, the full package, the deluxe package which is a limited edition, and I've had to sign each one of them. <laughs> they really made me work for it, they did. <laughs> oh, but I'm it's sure a, you enjoyed it. It's such a privilege. It really is. Absolutely. Well, Mitch, it's been an absolute yeah. privilege for me to, to speak to you uh, this afternoon, and uh, I wish you all the best for the future, and I hope the stamps do well as well for you. Thank you very much, Paul. I hope these podcasts do really well for you told you he was a character didn't i some life story he has and that was only scratching the surface so that's episode five in the can all wrapped up for you as a bumper one wasn't it again a big thank you for listening make sure you subscribe to the podcast series wherever you're listening to this give us a review and a rating too please it all helps tell your friends spread the word about the podcast and let's see if we can get a few more countries around the world listening in with us i genuinely do love hearing from you as well whatever it is you have to say message me on all the socials facebook instagram or twitter and see the video interview views on youtube too some of them extended because i can't fit everything into the podcast or else you'd be here for hours all you have to do is search for vintage rock pod wherever you go and you'll be able to find us you can also email me if you like as well vintage at gmail.com until episode six then take it easy and keep listening to your rock music and if you come across anyone who isn't a fan tell them my music is better than yours take care It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.